Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's edition, we're looking at the attitude of the global south to the war in Ukraine. In Europe and the United States, there was a lot of initial satisfaction at the strength of the international reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. At the UN General Assembly, 141 countries voted to condemn Russia. Only five supported Moscow. But there was also a middle group of 35 countries that abstained. And they included some big countries, China, as was to be expected given the closeness of Moscow's relationship with Beijing, but also India, a large democracy that's drawn closer to the US in recent years, and South Africa, the only sub-Saharan African country represented at the G20 group of leading economies. All told, the countries that abstained or voted with Russia amounted to over 50% of the world's population. In this week's edition, we'll be exploring the attitudes of India and South Africa in particular. My guests are Tanvi Madden of the Brookings Institution in Washington, who's an expert on Indian foreign policy, and Elizabeth Sideropoulos, the chief executive of the South African Institute of International Affairs, who joins us from Johannesburg. So, why is the Global South standing to one side on Ukraine? It's been the Russian line from the beginning that this war is not the fault of Moscow, but of NATO. So it must have been gratifying to the Kremlin to hear Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, echoing this line of argument in a speech to the South African parliament in March, shortly after the invasion. The war could have been avoided if NATO had heeded the warnings from amongst its own leaders and officials over the years that its eastward expansion would lead to greater, not less, instability in the region. India's abstention has also been a big disappointment to many in the West, particularly since Washington's been trying for some years to build a special relationship with Delhi. In a carefully worded speech, India's UN ambassador T.S. Tirumurti explained his country's position. The contemporary global order has been built on the UN Charter, international law, and respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of states. All member states need to honor these principles in finding a constructive way forward. Dialogue is the only answer to settling differences and disputes, however daunting that may appear at this moment. It is a matter of regret that the path of diplomacy was given up. We must return to it. For all these reasons, India has chosen to abstain on this resolution. But of course, official statements often only tell a small part of the story. To get a better sense of what's driving Indian and South African attitudes, I turned to my guest this week. I started by asking Tanvi Madden how she explains Indian neutrality. It goes back to India's relationship to Russia 
when India is looking at the crisis, it does not like this invasion. It does not support it. It does not endorse it. And it has adversely affected several Indian interests. But as India is looking at the Russian invasion of Ukraine and thinking about, you know, what do we say and do, they have to grapple with the fact that their military, for instance, its frontline equipment is 80 to 85 percent of Soviet or Russian origin. So it's over-dependent on Russian supplies. And this is at a time that it's facing off with China at its border, where tensions could escalate again at any time. They hope that Russia will stay on side and fear that it won't and that it will actually tilt towards China. It's already in their mind aligned closely with China, but Russia stayed neutral between China and India. They don't want Russia to go over to the other side. So I think that that's the kind of interest-based reasons. But also they do strategically think that it is not wise to isolate countries because that leads them to worse behavior and closes off the path to dialogue. Hence, also their approach that they generally tend not to condemn countries by name. And so you've seen them implicitly criticize the Russian action uh, with a lot of use of passive voice. And they don't use the Russian terms for the invasion, but they have not condemned Russia by name. And Elizabeth, I mean, obviously, if India were just one case, that would be kind of interesting. But it's quite striking that a lot of the global South, to use that term, have not taken the Western line. And South Africa was another high-profile country, which is regarded as a democracy, and therefore there's a vague expectation that it would support the Western line. That hasn't done so. Why do you think that is? I think there are some reasons that are very similar to the Indian position. But from the South African perspective, one of its key premises has always been that conflicts can be resolved through dialogue. And that's really uh, drawing on its own particular experience in the early 1990s. Who would have thought that South Africa would have been able to solve its problems uh, peacefully. But it is important to also just make a note that on the 24th of February, our foreign minister did issue a statement which actually called for a Russian withdrawal. In the ensuing period, of course, you saw different voices uh, from across government, uh, some coming out quite in support of Russia, um, making the case about NATO aggression and so on. But more recently, you know, South Africa, as with India, really not comfortable with what has happened in Ukraine with the Russian invasion, but has again recently made the case that this is about a violation of the UN Charter. Again, uh, the use of the passive voice or, or not specifically calling Russia out, just to quote from the statement, South Africa has always opposed violations of the sovereignty and territorial integrity of member states in keeping with the UN Charter. It has, however, said also that uh, the Russian Federation used force without sanction by the UN Security Council in Ukraine. So its position kind of initially condemning the invasion, then some different and ambiguous voices, but being quite clear about the issue of force, but specifically also that this is not the solution, that the solution can only be found in dialogue and negotiation. So, I mean, the positions that both of you set out are based around rational argument, realpolitik, and sort of different approaches to diplomacy. But is there also an emotional element? I mean, Tanvi, for me, you know, I dip in occasionally into Indian commentary, and you quite often come across this sense that the West is hypocritical, that they make this terrible fuss because it's white people dying, but, you know, there are atrocities committed all over the world. And this is, I think one phrase I came across was intolerable sanctimony from the West in calling upon India to be more outspoken. Is there an emotional element about this in India? I think there is, especially amongst the loudest voices in the room, and especially outside government. 
I think you see sentiment in kind of three ways play out. I think one is a nostalgia, I would say, of Russia having supported India, especially in the 1971 war, but also during at least some part of the Cold War, being a reliable veto for India at the UN Security Council when others weren't, um, was also a military supplier to India when others weren't, and was India's insurance policy against China in the 70s and 80s when other options weren't available. Though there is also recognition that India-Russia relations have changed, and on some of the big issues, including China and Pakistan, they are divergent views that they have, and Russia is today far less useful to India than several other partners might be across different domains. I think the second place is, you know, along with kind of this nostalgia about Russia, a kind of skepticism of the West, particularly the US, but I think in this case you see skepticism of Europe. And that plays out on things like saying, you know, where were you when China violated our territorial integrity and sovereignty and commitments that it made based in international law in 2020? All of you either stayed silent or said that both sides should show restraint. The U.S. did speak out. Europe largely didn't. And then, as you said, you know, they'll still talk about other instances which don't get as much attention And I think the other thing that really has got people's goat is this, I would say, over-commentary on Indian oil imports. Some figures came in just the other day, which is that India, in the list of whatever 20-odd countries that have paid Russia since the invasion, it is the least amount of all the countries, including almost all of Europe and the West. So I think that's the kind of hypocrisy. And then finally, I will say there's another aspect of sentiment, which doesn't get much attention, but it's there, which is that... India has been the subject of sanctions before. Prime Minister Modi himself has been the subject and target of sanctions. And so there is that aspect of sentiment, which they you know, think that sometimes unilateral sanctions, as they see them, or non-UN sanctions are imposed arbitrarily. And in this case, these are even people who have criticized the Russian actions by name, who will say you know, the sanctions as a whole need to be reviewed in terms of how they are applied. Yeah. And just briefly, though, I mean, are people seeing the same kind of coverage that we're seeing in the West, which obviously moves sentiment here a lot when you see the pictures from Bukha or Mariupol? Is that on Indian television screens? Yes. In fact, more so than any kind of previous Russian military action. The reason I said the loudest voices in the room have taken a certain stance, if you look at Indian public commentary more broadly, it is more critical. And it is more critical when the issue is focused on Russia using force to violate the territorial integrity and sovereignty of another country, which similar to South Africa, this is something that India has reiterated even as a government. But you are seeing on Indian TV screens, they had coverage of the Bucha massacre. And in fact, one of the loudest talking heads, the kind of more visible ones, he went from hosting Russian commentators who were propounding that bio-warfare disinformation to actually criticizing Russia for the Bucha massacre, calling it genocide, and saying that this has been done by Putin's forces, and then turned around and said to the camera, and Russia, no, this is not fake news. Part of that might just be he was seeing sentiment around him. Editorials have criticized the Russian steps. But it's also because that channel had four of its own journalists in Ukraine. So you, you've seen on Indian TV, night after night coverage of what Russian military forces have been doing, including shelling civilians and then telling Indians at the same time that they're not shelling civilians. And so, you know, it's not Western media coverage, it's India's own media that is covering this. And this is different. 
keep in mind, Indians did not have cable TV of this sort or not by, widespread when Grozny happened. And things like Syria, you know, for all the criticism of the West, Indian news channels covered Syria as well. So it is different this time. And I think you are seeing below kind of those loudest voices, including in the op-ed pages, there's a generational difference. But there's also, I think, in the public, some understanding that what Russia is doing is wrong. And it's partly because they're seeing it via their journalists, whether on print or in uh, television. Yeah. And Elizabeth, I mean, talking about the emotional reaction, some of what Tanvi said about historic ties to Russia presumably applies just as much, maybe even more, to South Africa, given the links between the African National Congress and the Soviet Union and so on. Absolutely. You know, it's the politics of solidarity or the politics of sentiment. And South Africa has a couple of these. Uh, Russia, in this particular instance, is one. I mean, Cuba, for example, is another. Palestine is also another. But uh, that has certainly played out very strongly among certain elements of both the tripartite alliance in South Africa between the ANC, Kasatu, and the South African Communist Party, as well as with uh, some of the opposition parties. I think a number of senior government officials politicians studied in Russia or in the Soviet Union or received military training there. We're part of the BRICS as well, and BRICS is an important uh, focus of our foreign policy. But I think it's also important to note here that South Africa sees this not necessarily only as a war between Russia and Ukraine, but really that this is almost a proxy a war that is being fought between Russia and the West and NATO. And certainly some government ministers have made that quite clear. For example, the deputy president in the National Council of Provinces a few weeks ago spoke about NATO aggression being the cause of what we were seeing in Ukraine at the moment. So if this is seen as sort of the great powers having a go at each other through different means, you know, one through military invasion, the other one through economic sanctions, the position that South Africa reverts to, apart from its emphasis on dialogue, is that we want to reiterate our independent, non-aligned credentials when it comes to foreign policy. We don't want to be drawn into the fights between one and another block in this, and they see that very much in that light. Also just want to make the point about Western hypocrisy. That is very much part of the debate here in South Africa. South Africa has raised the issue also in the past about the invasion of Iraq. The way in which the Libyan uh, situation was handled in 2011 has really left a very black mark in the way in which South Africa views the West. The consequences of regime change, which was what in fact it was in Libya in 2011, are being felt across the African continent, most notably, of course, in the Sahel. It's given rise to and catalyzed uh, the rise of Islamic extremism building on local grievances, and we now have it in our backyard in northern Mozambique and in Cabo Delgado. So all of these are very much part of the reason and the way in which South Africa then views the sometimes very emotional approaches by particularly Europeans on why it has not come out much more forcefully on the matter of Ukraine. And I think it's also important to note here that if we go back to the pandemic over the last two years, 
the way in which Europe in particular has responded, for example, to the South African and Indian proposal to the WTO for a temporary waiver on trips on intellectual property right has been seen as reflecting a perspective that the European Union will sort of look after its interests first and foremost, notwithstanding the rhetoric of helping and sending out vaccines and so on. And then there is also the dimension of racism, which, of course, uh, was quite prominently broadcast in the early days uh, of the war when many African students were trying to leave Ukraine. Just briefly on President Ramaphosa's own position, I was a little surprised by the warmth with which initially he spoke about his conversations with President Putin, because, you know, even just seeing a read across from South African situations, Putin is a strongman leader who was close to Zuma. There was accusations of corruption from Zuma and the Russian regime. I would have thought that uh, Ramaphosa would want to slightly distance himself from that style of leadership, but perhaps that's a misreading. I think there are a number of domestic factors that uh, the president had to take into account. My own perspective on that was that that was really (laughs) rather unwise. I think it came across almost a little bit as tone deaf to what was happening. And thankfully, you know, there has been some recalibration over the ensuing period, including having a telephone call with President Zelensky. But what the president is having to balance is the competing perspectives and positions within the ANC. And part of it plays into the factional battles that are still going on between what is called the radical economic transformation faction, which is really referring to the people who support Zuma and what I would call the state capture project, and many others would too, and those who are are probably supporting President Ramaphosa, who are much more pragmatic, call things and see things as they should be seen. But the fact that we're moving into an election year for the party at the end of the year, that the factional fighting is becoming pretty intense as various provincial elections for party positions are being held at the moment. I think these are all factors that the president had to balance. And I think my sense was they hadn't coordinated effectively, didn't really expect the war to break out. And when that happened, also weren't necessarily fully on top of the various uh, dynamics and causes that led to that situation. The narrative that had been adopted about, uh, you know, this is the result of NATO aggression clearly is a very one-sided interpretation of, of the facts. And the facts were much more complex. And it was not just about NATO's eastward expansion, which seemed to dominate much of the discourse coming from the government at the time. So all foreign policy is local. But just to finish... Obviously, the West has been a bit disconcerted by realising that a lot of the global South is neutral. But trying to think through some of the consequences, I mean, at the moment, it's been mainly a question of abstaining at UN resolutions and so on. But to give it a bit of focus, there's meant to be a G20 summit at the end of this year. I think Putin will try to go. I think the Americans and the Europeans, at least at head of state level, will not go if Putin goes. I mean, Elizabeth, you mentioned the importance of the BRICS and so on. And Tanvi too, India's a member of the BRICS. Just ask both of you, in that kind of scenario, say Tanvi, what do you think Modi would do? Would he go to a G20 summit attended by Putin, but not by the Western leaders? Yes, I think so. I think he would go because he'd be showing support for the Indonesian chair, for one. Indonesia is a close Indian partner. Second, India is hosting the G20 in 2023. 
And so, you know, it wants this kind of either sorted out or does not want other leaders then, because, you know, it would be several leaders who might say, if Modi won't go, then we won't go to India. But I think there's the other aspect that I mentioned earlier about India's own experience with sanctions. In the Indian government's mind, the question will be, what happens tomorrow when the West doesn't like something the Indian government is doing? Will they try to kind of vote us out of various institutions? And so I don't think you'll see a Modi government that will be supportive of excluding Russia from the G20. I think they'd be supportive of the Indonesian move reportedly of inviting Ukraine to attend. But I think this is part of a broader thing related to kind of that Russia-NATO discussion. The Indian government itself has distanced itself. There's some kind of sympathy for Russian concerns about European security architecture more broadly, but you have seen in the course of the three phone calls that Modi has had with Putin since the invasion, it has steadily become more critical. They have dropped references to Russia-NATO problems or to legitimate security interests of all parties, as Russia likes to put it, to saying this is a Russia-Ukraine problem and recommended that uh, President Putin talk to President Zelensky directly, also India's way of conveying that they do recognize him as the legitimate regime of Ukraine. And so I think, you know, you, you've seen India kind of, in some senses, distance itself from that kind of Russia-NATO problem framing, but they will not like this framing we're now seeing of saying that, you know, the objective of all this is to weaken Russia or that Putin must go. When statements like that are made, you know, one can say, yes, we want a weaker Russia that cannot invade its neighbors. But that nuance is going to get lost. All countries will hear in the global south, and the Russians and the Chinese will play this up. Uh, they will say, look, we told you guys this was not about Ukraine. This was about NATO wanting to weaken Russia and get rid of Putin all along. And this is you know, that proxy war. And that will take away Ukrainian agency in all this. And so I think you know things like excluding Russia from the G20 does have kind of an adverse impact on the discussion. I think the G20 is just kind of, a, you know, there's a recognition this is a diplomatic problem that needs to be resolved, and they'll hope the uh, compromise solution that the Indonesians come up will will be respected. Yeah. And uh, Elizabeth, finally, presumably if, if Modi doesn't have a problem being in the family photo with Putin, Ramaphosa won't either. No, absolutely not. Um, I think we certainly would not uh, boycott uh, the G20 summit if the EU and the US decided uh, to do so. I think there are two issues that South Africa really doesn't like in terms of the way in which some of the international challenges are dealt with by the West. The one is the sanctions, certainly sanctions that are not mandated by the UN Security Council, and the issue of regime change. And that clearly has come through in some of the discourse. I think the other point from a South African perspective is that if you are excluding countries from fora, take the UN Human Rights Council as one example, certainly the G20 as another, your ability to understand their positions, create possibilities for off-ramps, that was discussed certainly before the war in Ukraine broke out, but uh, South Africa is really concerned that the trajectory of developments between Ukraine, Russia, EU, the US is not creating the opportunity for identifying constructive off-ramps to this crisis. So if you take people out of these discussions, you actually limit the possibility of resolving this 
through some sort of dialogue, which will have to happen. South Africa also has made the point, uh, although not in the most recent uh, statement, that if there are certain security concerns from the Russian perspective, these do need to be considered. And has also argued that what is happening with this war is that global power relations are being realigned. So it's very aware that this is uh, about a much broader set of challenges in a post-Cold War a framework that will need to be uh, addressed. And they're not going to be addressed only through Ukraine-Russia negotiations, although that is the first priority because of the dire humanitarian situation. But it is much bigger and keeping countries out of global fora is not going to create an environment conducive to resolving these. That was Elizabeth Sideropoulos of the South African Institute of International Affairs, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks also to Tanvi Madden for joining us. And that's it for this week. I'll be away next week, but one of my colleagues will step in. So please join us then for another edition of the Rachman Review. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.